fired you at one point, but now you're here. Welcome back. So to the welcome block. back. Yeah. Uh, Hold on. Lewis, I've got to excuse myself. Okay. I've got to go. Got to uh, go. Go run a business. Right All right, man. Thank you very much. We'll see you. Jeremy Faust uh, is, on, is on the call here now from uh, from. Well, your, your 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 phone number caught me off guard. I thought you were a telemarketer at first, so I have to apologize. So, uh, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. I'm trying to catch up on uh, you know what's going on in my uh, part of the world, which is you know a new variant. So, um, yeah, learning a lot and um, kind of burning the midnight oil to to keep up and talk to my friends uh, here, you know, in the United States and also around the world, and uh, try to sort out what what everything really means. So, uh, Dr. Faust is, uh, works at uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital in Har- at Harvard in, in Boston, and um, you've written extensively through the Bulletin program, which the lead is a part of, uh, about what's going on. T- tell us what you know about uh, Omicron right now. What, what, is it, what is it you're kind of uh, paying attention to, uh, and is there reason to be concerned? There's been some suggestion that it's not as, it's not as serious as maybe Delta, but what, what are you hearing? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely concerned about this. I mean, I think that this is a, you know, a pretty a pretty um, unstable kind of situation where we don't know everything that we need to know to be able to, to say, okay, you know, false alarm or not false alarm. I think it's it's early, and I think that you know, I've heard some things in the past day that kind of catch my eye and you know things I didn't want to hear. But um, and I'll tell you about some of that stuff. But I think the main thing is that you know this started because a a genetic analysis of the variant was done. That is that, you know, the scientists look at the the sequence, the genetic sequence, and they're able to say, look, that, that's kind of a, that sequence has meaning to us, we think. We see how many changes and mutations there are to that, to that genetic sequence. That tells me, hmm, maybe this is a scary variant. But the reality is, Lewis, that we actually don't have the technology to make that leap to say, okay, wait, if, if this change in the, in the instruction manual of the virus, that means this behavior will result. And so we don't really have that technology, but we, we do sort of have hints of that technology and that ability. So what, I think we're scared that we, we read the, the information and we see, well, this could be more contagious. This could evade our vaccines, but we don't know that. But what's happening now is we're beginning to hear that, you know, it is very contagious. But the question is, in 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 terms of the vaccine holding up and in terms of severe illness, do we have anything to worry about? In terms of severe illness, I really haven't heard anything yet that bothers me, but in terms of the contagious piece, I am beginning to hear that there's quite a lot of contagion. Um, one of the things that was uh, I read yesterday was that the suggestion that, that this came out of possibly the fact that in South Africa that HIV is very hard to um, control or treat and that the person that that this may have happened to was you know immune compromised did you what what is your understanding of how that works exactly yeah that's a great question and i think that for one thing i'm not certain that we really know that it came from south africa Mm -hmm. i think we know that's where it's it's kind of broke out right but i think that um so wherever this happened though it has um this version of the coronavirus has so many mutations that it, it feels like that um, it's almost like time has been accelerated. The way I think about this is like, let's say you lost your cat um, and you know it's been an hour, but then your cat shows up 20 miles away. You think, wait, how did my cat get 20 miles away in just one hour? And so that's kind of what we're looking at here. It's like, wait, how did this variant show up with this many mutations in such a short amount of time? 
And one explanation for that is that this virus, this particular virus, was in one person's body for a long time, and that person was immune compromised, and that they might have received various treatments like like convalescent plasma or other treatments that can actually, um, when, they, when they don't work, can actually kind of backfire and cause um, the, the virus to sort of get smart and mutate and, and avoid all that stuff. The I don't want people to, to think that's a common thing. I think that's a, um, a problem that would only happen for a patient who basically has the almost no immune system left right we're talking about people who you know kind of the proverbial bubble boy you know literally um have to be on immune suppressing uh, immune suppressing medications and and that's that's the level that this can happen at not like you or me if we got some some treatments or a vaccine so that's the thought is that maybe this virus lived in one body for a long time and had kind of a chance to evolve in that kind of uh, pressured environment the um, you know you've also written extensively about you know Texas and uh, and and the and that this was one of the leading causes of death among younger people. Tell me a little bit about that study as well, because here in Texas, you know, there is a, uh, I would say a high level of deniability, you know, or or yeah, denial about the the um, you know I guess the virulence of this of this 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 disease. Uh, what was uh, what has been the feedback on that on that paper? And tell me a little bit more about it too. Yeah, so this is a research paper that um, I led a, a team of uh, researchers here at Harvard, and then a bunch of folks at Yale as well. So, and, and we've been looking at um, we've been looking at mortality or, or fatalities in young adults, 25 to 44, so age 25 to 44. And I got into this kind of a year and a half ago, really because I couldn't believe it would possibly possibly be true you know i sort of was buying into the same thing that many of us were saying which is look this is mostly disease that kills old people Mm -hmm. and that's certainly true it it has the numbers add up but the thing is young people just for all reasons 25 to 44 that age group the death rate in general is so much lower right right and so if you had a doubling of that group it would take a long time to notice it because you'd kind of just have to see so many cases so we wanted to actually make sure that we weren't sort of uh, weren't wrong. So we started to look into it, and I was shocked. I was just shocked when I realized that when there's a really big outbreak in any kind of jurisdiction, a city or a state or a country, and it's uncontrolled, the young adults get hit hard. It just takes it takes enough cases. But when there are enough cases, literally uh, COVID-19 can become the leading cause of death for adults 25 to 44. Wow. We certainly saw that in, in, in Texas um, for the third quarter of 2020. And for all of 2020 in the Hispanic population. So we know that the Hispanic population is very frequently um, having people who can't necessarily um, do a shutdown, right? They have to go to work anyway. They're exposed. They don't necessarily have as much access to primary care. So it's really unfortunate that we saw that play out. And I suspect that the same kind of thing will have played out nationally. I think we'll know that literally in in the next coming days. We're going to get a really nice full readout on on the entire um, the entire country um, from the CDC from last year, they're going to give us gran- really detailed granular data, and so we'll know that uh, w- you know that unfortunately this has probably happened elsewhere as well. Um, one of the we had the uh, fire chief here uh, uh, on in Kerrville, and just so you know some of our numbers, we're we're, we're actually being told um, as of yesterday that we had 500 active cases. Kirk County is about 50,000 people here in, in uh, kind of, I guess, central West Texas. 
Um, and we've had, um, by my count, 200 fatalities um, since, the, since the start of this thing. But the fire chief was on the other day, and he had it. Uh, and he's, you know, he's uh, 51 years old. He talked about how miserable it was. Um, but his concern was long COVID. What, what, do, you, what do you hear about long COVID, and, and what, what should people know about that? Yeah, long COVID is incredibly important to, uh, story to keep watching develop. One of the things long COVID is, I think that we are still learning how to define it. We don't even really know what we mean when we say long COVID. Mm-hmm. And that's actually really important because there can be different forms, there can be different meanings. So one of the distinctions that I have not seen made nearly enough is the distinction between what I would call medium COVID and long COVID. So medium COVID would be something like, well, two to six months after this virus, you are still feeling symptoms or you have new symptoms that might be related to your, to your uh, previous infection. And in a way, I actually think that medium COVID is something that probably happens with almost any serious virus that, you know, medium flu, medium RSV, medium anything, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that our body is just, you know, literally it was a war. It was, it was a war zone. And it's sort of the equivalent of, of, uh, of biological shrapnel. Like your body just is responding to that. And I think it's very common. I think that um, SARS-CoV-2, it's just coronavirus, does, a, does this at pretty high rates we've learned, right? Then there's long COVID, which is sort of maybe six months, a year. And now we're, you know, coming in on two years. People could have longer term symptoms. And I think those examples are going to be less frequent and i think that the the research there is going to be very very focused on what are the symptoms that actually really do persist for this long because we've heard of hundreds of symptoms and they can't really all be causing uh, they can't be all really part of the story probably some of them are and then some of it's probably just something you know something else we don't know it could be you know unrelated or it could be uh, you know a, a that they have another diagnosed another diagnostic condition that we don't know about and then of course there's the stress of this whole thing right, right. i mean like this is a very stressful thing but you know people um i mean the body responds to stress in in very impressive ways there's actually something called broken heart syndrome uh, which is unrelated to all of this but like literally if someone um has an emotional event they um their heart literally uh goes under stress and we can and we see that um on on an ultrasound and we see that on mm. an, an electrocardiogram and in that that particular version of it is usually benign but it can be can be dangerous um so we know that the stress of this can cause physical manifestations and so i kind of wonder also to what extent some of the things we're hearing about is a combination of these things so i think we're learning a lot but um i think you know patients have really alerted us to this and researchers are doing the right thing which is to start to study it more and most importantly figuring out do the vaccines prevent it? Do other uh, therapeutics help it? My suspicion, and, and, and I think the data show this, is that um, the vaccines do indeed decrease the likelihood of of, of keeping that long COVID and, and, and reducing the the severity of the illness. Correct. That's correct. I mean, I think clearly the vaccine is is still holding up for for um, protecting against severe illness, hospitalization, and death. And I think there's some suggestion in some research that it, would, it prevents long COVID. We even heard um, in the initial vaccine rollout that people who had long COVID, who then got vaccinated, felt felt a change in their symptoms for the better. I don't think that's been verified. All to say, we have a lot to learn. Yeah, uh, a couple, just two more questions for you. One uh, from one of our uh, our viewers saying, asking, 
um, d is are we ever going to see an end of these variants? Is this is, is this going to be on and on and on and on? Or how, how is that going to work? My opinion is that we are going to always have these variants popping up. So that's sort of a new normal. But what I do what I do want to say that it's a little more positive because that sounds really depressing um, is that I think we're going to get better and better at understanding what they mean each time around. So we've never really had an opportunity to study a virus this carefully, this closely, this quickly, and with the entire science community, the entire world's community of experts sharing information in real time with the best technology that we have, I think we're going to learn about the thing that I said before, which is when we look at a bunch of mutations or when we hear about something new and we have only a certain amount of information, but we don't yet have a month or two of clinical data. Right. Can we make that leap and say, here's what we think we know this means? And right now, I think we're kind of in the minor leagues with that, although, of course, compared to our predecessors, we are, you know, giants, right? I mean, yeah. they couldn't do any of this 100 years ago, but I think that we are still learning. And so I think that we're going to have these new variants. And I think that as time goes on, we'll get better and better at knowing what they mean sooner so that they don't have to be disruptive unless they're really, unless they're really problematic. And I, I, I continue to think that Omicron is in that, in that moment where we don't know. I'm worried about it, but uh, I don't think we yet know. What is it like to be, you know, you know, you work in emergency, uh, emergency medicine, but what is it like in the hospitals for for healthcare workers or dealing with with these COVID patients? You know, we we had at one point our hospital here um, has uh, a fourteen bed ICU. It was pretty much full uh, during uh, September, in particular. Um, they had as many as forty eight patients in the hospital of, of a hospital that is designed to hold about 86 um, acute care patients. So you had, you know, you had times there was more than half of the patients were with COVID. What, what, what is that like on a staff? Well, thanks for asking that question, because I think sometimes the uh, sort of like healthcare hero thing is like, it's nice, but it goes to the wayside or people don't understand what it is we're dealing with. And um, so I appreciate it. And I think that, you know, one thing I'll say is I think that when, the when we're seeing covid and we're not overwhelmed and that's really what i'm dealing with right now i'm in a very highly vaccinated area when we're seeing covid but we're not overwhelmed i think there's still that same level of commitment and professionalism that you'd come to expect and i think that we're proud to go to work and, and do this and it's you know we'd rather be uh dealing with a virus that was a little less scary but that's okay we, we signed up to, to to do things like that i think that people in my profession, the doctors, the nurses, the technicians, the PAs, I think the, the the burnout and the difficulty and the emotional kind of overwhelming sensation comes when it feels like a tidal wave and it's just never ending. Yeah. And that has happened in so many places, you know, and I think you're describing that, that, that we're, you know, it's like getting on a plane and the pilot thinks it's not safe to fly. Well, we have to fly and we don't have a choice. And so I think in those situations, we're asking people to, to make sacrifices and say, look, do whatever you can to slow this, this virus down. Do whatever you can to stay out of the hospital, the ICU. We can only do our job uh, if we have the resources. And there literally are moments, we've had moments where people have had those situations that we feared, right, where there's just not enough beds or not enough ventilators. And that's unfortunately, that's a reality. It doesn't happen as much because I think we have done a decent job at slowing this down in, in some ways. But. Honestly, there have been places and times where we didn't achieve that, and that's a tragedy. It's, it's totally avoidable. But I think ultimately, I, I think if the, if the public knew what it looks like in an ICU when this virus is let 
to roam free, I think that they would have second thoughts. Yeah. Hey, uh, Dr. Jeremy Faust of Brigham and Women's Hospital at Harvard University. Uh, thank you so much. He's, you can follow him on insidemedicine.bulletin.com. Um, a great read, and uh, I try to link to as much of your stuff as I possibly can. And it's great to have you as a, uh, as a, as a resource, and I, and, I, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Yeah, no, thank you. And, I mean, Texas is really an epicenter, and I know you guys are – you know, having a, a, an interesting and rough period. So I, I appreciate your coverage. All right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Faust. All right. Appreciate it. All right. Well, that was Dr. Jeremy Faust. And uh, did you guys learn anything?